0: Good evening. So here's where we are so far in our story. Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends. He was arrested. He was led into the chief priest's house, was put on a mock trial all through the night. And the next morning he came on trial before Pilate and then King Herod later on, He has been experiencing injustice and loneliness, betrayal, false accusations, and then eventually of course, Pilate relented because he was afraid of the revolts that might happen if he didn't do something to this man. And so he was flogged and bleeding. And then they started to lead him out outside the city toward the location where these Roman crucifixions would happen. And so we're going to continue the story from Luke's account little by little. As he exits the city, he's led out, and we're going to encounter three different sets of characters along the way as he goes to the cross. And we're going to see what we can learn from these different characters. The first one we're going to encounter on the way out is Simon of Cyrene. In verse 26, it says, As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and they put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Now, who is this guy named Simon? He's kind of mysterious, and I think that's actually part of the point. He's portrayed here as someone who's who's not in the thick of things. He's a stranger he isn't aware of what's going on with Jesus or all the hubbub you know, that's been happening in Jerusalem over the past few days. He's coming in from somewhere, we're not told. Uh, he's from Cyrene, which is kind of in Northern uh, Libya. We're not sure why he's here, but he's presented as a total stranger uh, coming into the city as Jesus is being led out. And it's just you know, providential. It's, it's coincidental that uh, they meet. In this way, and so the Roman soldiers they see him, and they immediately involve him. They have him take the cross, and which tells you uh, the physical impairment that Jesus is under by this time. Right, he can't even carry the cross. This was custom for them for criminals to carry their own cross to be crucified in. He he was not strong enough to even do that, and so Simon is enlisted in this movement of Jesus toward the cross. Now we know from the Gospel of Mark in this part of the story that uh, Simon also has two sons and they're named Alexander and Rufus. Uh, But besides that, we don't know much else. Simon was brought into the story of Jesus going to the cross. He's carrying this, this big wooden heavy beam for reasons that he is not aware. He doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know Jesus, presumably. He probably was not a believer. Um, he's just sucked right into the story. And he, because of that involvement, went all the way to the end of this story. So he would have heard the, the cries, the wailing, the, the mocking, the insults. He would have witnessed the Roman soldiers nailing him to the cross and hoisting him up there and he would have heard the sayings of Jesus from the cross, and he would have heard him praying for people's forgiveness as well. But he's no longer just an observer. He somehow is a participant in this story. Now, why does this matter? A couple quick thoughts on this. Simon's role in this story adds authenticity to the story. I, I kind of mentioned a minute ago that, that he has two sons, Alexander and Rufus, and Mark adds that detail and it's, it sticks out like a sore thumb, it's as if, and you can kind of read between the lines a little bit, it's as if, and we know when, when uh, Mark wrote the gospel as well, it would have been in the lifetime, you know, within one generation of these events happening that he's writing his gospel. And it's as if he's inviting his readers to remember who Alexander and Rufus are. Remember Alexander and Rufus, they're the sons of Simon. And so when I'm talking about Simon here, you know Alexander and Rufus. You can go talk to them about their dad's story of how he was involved in this event with Jesus. And so it adds a measure of authenticity to the gospel. In other words, there's no spin here. There's no um, you know, backroom deals and uh, you know, going on with the story of Jesus going to the cross. It's very public. And, and another reason why the public nature of Christ's crucifixion is important is because of of how it addresses the problem of shame. The Roman crucifixion was a shameful way to die. It was very public. These people would be stripped down, they would be hung and bleeding, and it was a deterrent, of course, to prevent crime. Um, But it was a very shameful and public way to die. And what's important for us to see in this story of this public crucifixion is that Jesus had to enter into our shame to defeat it from within. You know, we put a lot of energy, all of us do, we have shame. We put a lot of energy into putting on masks, to, you know, looking impressive, whether it be reputation or work or accomplishments or physical looks or features or whatever. We put a lot of work into not being found out. Me too. We all struggle with this. And we even go back to Genesis when Adam and Eve had sinned and, <clears throat> you know, they, they tried to put on the, you know, the fig leaves to cover their nakedness and their shame. We see that very, um, you know, that human uh, problem of sin and shame being expressed there. God looks at their fig leaves and he says, it's not, not good enough. And then in Genesis 3.21, it says that God provided clothes for Adam and Eve In other words, animals had to be sacrificed to provide leather clothes for them. And that's a picture of the gospel, that God covered their shame, and blood had to be shed for that to happen. And it's a a foreshadowing of what Christ would later do. But Jesus went into this open, very exposed situation, even though He didn't deserve it, to take on our shame and to live in that place of total embarrassment and exposure so that we wouldn't have to, so that we could be free and have our shame be defeated. And so Hebrews 12 talks about this. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so the story of Simon invites us to see the importance of the public nature of this crucifixion. And in a sense, we're invited to walk with him to the cross. The second set of characters is the daughters of Jerusalem. So we're going to continue reading in verse 27. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you say, Blessed are the the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? So what's going on here? Who are these daughters of Jerusalem? This is actually a term of endearment. Jesus is, is, uh, in a sense, really lifting up these women who are crying and really in pain because of what they're seeing Jesus go through. And he's acknowledging that. And he's saying, um, you know, he's encouraging them with this title, And it's actually set in stark contrast to the men in this story who are either running away from him or who are mocking and insulting him or crucifying him. These these women are identifying with the pain of Jesus, and he's acknowledging that. But he says something strange, doesn't he? When he says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves and for your children. So what's he getting at here? There is an immediate meaning to this. Jesus knows that there is coming a time in their generation, in their lifespan, in their children's lifespan, where Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And so in 70 AD, the Roman government came in and did that. They destroyed the temple. And there's an immediate meaning that, look, there is judgment coming, and you need to pay attention to that. But really, Jesus, even though there's an immediate meaning here, there's something broader, there's something bigger and more significant going on here. He's saying something like this, you're crying because you see someone you love and going through horrors that you can't imagine. You know, that's a good reason to cry, but it's not the best reason to cry. And he's saying, essentially, you don't yet see, uh, daughters of Jerusalem, you don't yet see that you're in the same boat as I am. You can't see that yet. It's coming. You can imagine, maybe uh, imagine yourself in a canoe, you're going down a river and you have a friend with you and, and uh, he's in his own canoe and you're paddling along and then you look over and your friend's canoe apparently has a, has a hole in the boat or whatever and he starts sinking. So you start paddling over to him and uh, you know, kind of make a plan, okay, go ahead and get in my boat. But while you're figuring this out, while he's sinking, you hear the roar of a waterfall and you realize you're both heading right to the edge of a waterfall that will take you all the way over and there's no surviving that. That would change your perspective, right? You can kind of manage life a little bit uh, in the face of problems when your friend is hurting, you sympathize, you reach out, you know, you're concerned. But when you realize that you're in the same boat, you're, you're in danger with him, it changes everything. Jesus is saying, I appreciate that you're heartbroken about what's happening, But understand, every one of you will stand before the throne of the great king, and you'll have to give an account for your life before the righteous and holy judge. And that is a dangerous place to be if you're not prepared for that. Okay? It's a dangerous place to be. It will be, if you're not ready, it will be a day when it will be of such horror that you will actually want to be crushed by the mountains. You'll call the mountains to fall on you so that you don't have to endure that. Okay, this day is coming. Now, of course, Jesus knows something that these these women don't know. He knows that the only way they can survive this coming day of judgment and cosmic destruction is if He Himself goes over the edge so that they don't have to. If He Himself goes into the abyss, if He goes into death, then there can be a rescue. There can be hope. There can be a reversal of this dire situation. And so here's the point. We're, we're not going to see the, the horrors and the beauty of Good Friday until we see that Christ's crucifixion is a vivid portrayal of the ugliness and badness of our sin and, and what it costs to save us from it. Um, and to see that we actually deserve this. So there's, you know, we can't really appreciate the good news until we really see with, with sober-mindedness, with seriousness, the depths of our sin until we see how bad the bad news is. And so Jesus' interaction with these daughters of Jerusalem confront us with two realities, how bad our sin is and how great his affection and his love and his grace is. And now we come to the third set of characters in this story, and this is the two criminals who are crucified next to Jesus. In verse 32, it says the other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Now, these criminals, in the, in the Gospel of Luke, he uses the more general word, criminal. In uh, the Gospel of Mark, he uses the word robber or bandit. And so, in you know, some translations, we kind of, in our collective memory, think of them as thieves. We talk about the two thieves. Uh, whatever they were, it deserved death. So, back then, robbers or thieves or criminals like this would be people who would wait on the roadside outside of cities for people to come in or go out or whatever, they would rob them. And sometimes murder was involved in order to take their stuff and go sell it somewhere. We don't know, how, you know what they specifically did to deserve this, but they, the strong implication here is that they deserve this. They're bad guys, really bad guys. So all three of them are being led out with you know, Jesus being one of them to the place called the skull. Now imagine this scene. The two criminals are carrying their own crosses Jesus is so weak and bloody that he can't even carry his own cross. The criminals are the ones that deserve this. And Jesus, the bloody one, who has already been severely punished, is the innocent one. And there would be such a contrast to actually see them walking toward Golgotha, the place of the skull. Now, why, why is he being so mistreated like this? We know the answer, of course, and we read it earlier from Isaiah 53. He took up our pain and our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He did it for us. He had to go over the edge into the abyss of pain and death, torture, insults, so that we could be rescued from that, so we could be delivered. And so these three men, are hoisted and fastened on their crosses. Many people are watching, people are weeping. Others are yelling and hurling insults and and mocking him. You know, you say you're the king of the Jews, save yourself, you know, mocking him. And what's interesting in this story with these two criminals is both of the criminals are joining in with the mocking. And this is really shocking if you know anything about what crucifixion does to the body, you're hanging by your arms, and so the, the weight of your body is pulling down on your arms, which, which uh, puts a lot of pressure on your lungs. And so you're gasping for breath just to, just to survive. And they are going through the effort and the trouble to join in with the mocking against Jesus. Why is that? You know, this kind of goes to show that the gospel is offensive. It is good news. I mean, to think of the grace and the love and the affection is just so heartwarming and so uh, amazing. But it's also offensive because the gospel requires us to see Jesus not just as our savior, but also as Lord and as king. And and he calls us to, to dethrone ourselves and to bow down before him and surrender all to him. And that's hard to take, it's hard to swallow. Uh, so you're either for Jesus or you're against him. There's no neutral ground, right? And so these people, if they're not submitting to him as king and Lord, they're mocking him and going through the effort to do that. But what's interesting is both criminals are doing it. But something changes in one of the criminals. A little while later, several things happen In in the account of Luke. He says, uh, he points out that as he's being hoisted up and nailed to the cross, Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And the implication here is that everybody's watching this, Simon and Cyrene, these women, all these people are watching that happen and hearing him call down not the angels to bear the sword to kill these enemies and be delivered, but calling down forgiveness for the very people who are doing this to him. And that second criminal, something happened in his heart. Something broke. Because the very next time you, you hear from them in the, in the account of Luke, uh, the first one is continuing the mocking and the second one basically rebukes him. and says, don't you fear God? We're getting what we deserve. This man has done nothing wrong. Something has changed. He heard him talk about forgiveness even though he was being nailed to the cross. And he saw on that day, in that moment, what undeserving grace, sheer love and mercy looks like. And he wanted it. He began to realize that, you know, as, as bad as I've messed up my life, as far away from God as I have gone, with as many things as I've done wrong, here I am hanging on a cross and I deserve it. And this man is forgiving people that are doing the same kinds of things that I've done. And he's asking, begging God for their forgiveness. That means I have hope. And that's when he, of course, asks Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus says, truly I say to you, you will be with me in paradise today. Isn't that good news? But there is a turning point there. You can think of these two criminals as picturing all of humanity all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, and what's, what is the due penalty for that? The wages of sin is death. We're all one of those two criminals. Human beings, we're all in sin. And so which one are you? Are you the one who is seeing grace put on display in front of you and yet continues to have a hard heart and not melt in front of him? Or are you the one who says, I have hope, and I'm going to ask for that grace? So this is an invitation for you to ask and reach out for that grace. So these three groups of characters, let me ask, which one of these these groups of characters do you most identify with? Maybe you're like Simon of Cyrene. You don't really know Christ. You're not hostile to him. You're not mad at him. Okay, he's a decent guy, probably. You think of yourself maybe as an innocent bystander. But this story with Simon invites you to consider that you're not as innocent as you think. You know, you may be coming about, you know, doing business, doing your own thing, but you're going to encounter Jesus at some point, and you're going to be invited into the crucifixion story. It's no accident that you're here tonight. You're invited into this story to consider Jesus. While being nailed to the cross, Jesus looked at you and said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Maybe you're like the daughters of Jerusalem. You've grown up in the church. Maybe you've grown up in a Christian home. You've been exposed to the people of God and the the word of God and the grace and the love that comes with that. You really, really like Jesus. He inspires you. His sacrifice, it, it motivates you. Maybe the story of the crucifixion moves you to tears like the daughters of Jerusalem in our story. Do you deeply appreciate though the severity of your sins, our sins? This story invites you, us, to weep deeply for the danger that we are in apart from the saving work of Christ. And Jesus, while being nailed to the cross, looked up and prayed, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And then the two criminals on the cross, which one are you? We're all on the threshold of judgment. And we have an opportunity to see the power of grace. Forgiveness and to experience it, you may be thinking, you know, you don't know what my life is about. God knows. Look at that. Look at the second thief or the second criminal. Look at how bad he had wrecked his life, and he had no chance to quote redeem himself. He had nothing to show for before God, and yet he simply reached out to, to Jesus for grace, and Jesus granted him it that day. He was with him in paradise. Jesus, while being nailed to the cross, looks at you and prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, Jesus is offering you forgiveness. Do you receive it? Do you trust him? Let's pray. Father, help us to see our sin. Help us to take it seriously and to be appalled by it. Lord, help us to see through the lens of the scripture, that sin is not just doing wrong things and failing to do the right things. It is that, certainly. But it's also um, living life with us at the center, living as if we are God, being um, anxious and frustrated when things don't go our way, Uh, all kinds of ways that we're self-centered. Lord, we are desperately needy of your grace. We receive your forgiveness. We're so blown away at how you could, on the spot, ask for the forgiveness of people nailing you to the cross. Lord, help us that, help that to melt our hearts. And help us to pray. Remember us when you come into your kingdom. Help us to rest in your promise that today we will see you in paradise. We rest in that promise. Amen.